Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. E.T.A. Hoffman was a civil servant, critic, composer, artist, and fiction writer whose work epitomizes everything that Romanticism stands for. The irrational subversion of the order of reason, the transcendental reach of affect and emotion, the exhumation of forces which the Enlightenment claimed to have buried deep underground, in short, everything that we at Weird Studies dig most— He was born in 1776 and died in 1822 at the age of 46. In the course of that short life, he penned some of the most foundational weird stories, including The Sandman, the one we discuss in today's episode. It's the story of Nathaniel, a German university student whose weak constitution makes him susceptible to prolonged bouts of febrile fantasy and paroxysmal insight, shades of Poe, Baudelaire, and the other decadents who saw Hoffman as a patron saint of sorts. In his youth, Nathaniel had a terrifying encounter with a figure he identified as the infamous Sandman of German folklore, a creature tasked with making sure little boys and girls went to bed on time. Several years later, he encounters the same creature under a different guise, and the faithful meeting leads to his obsession with a woman who may or may not be an automaton. Phil and I have been talking about doing this strange story since Weird Studies' inception, mainly because it set a standard for weird literature that endures to this day. Some listeners will be familiar with Hoffman's story from reading Sigmund Freud's famous essay, The Uncanny, another piece we discuss at some length in the second half of this episode. Looking at Freud through Hoffman's lens allows us to uncover the fabulous depths of the great psychoanalyst's work. It enables us to read The Uncanny not as a study of Hoffman's Sandman, but rather as a kind of sequel to it, one that is every bit as eerie, fantastical, and revelatory as its antecedent. Listeners who support us on Patreon will have had the opportunity to read both texts by now, because the great thing about being a Weird Studies patron is that you get to find out about show topics ahead of time. And that's just one of the perks. On every off week, Phil and I release a bonus episode for our listeners tier patrons and some writing for those who choose to support us on the readers tier. Without our patrons' support, our show wouldn't exist. It's as simple as that. So thanks, patrons. And thanks also to the members of the Weird Studies subreddit, who along with our patrons continue to prove that Weird Studies appeals to some frickin' smart people. Definitely not automatons. Are you an automaton? Well, as far as we're concerned, there's only one way to find out. You must look us up on Patreon or Reddit and prove it. Consider Weird Studies the new Turing test. doing today the sandman the sandman and not neil gaiman's better known i mean better known these days fiction of that title 
But yes, the original story by E.T.A. Hoffman from what? 1816 or something? 1816, yeah. I think this is probably the earliest story. In fact, it's certainly the earliest story that we have focused on in this show. Yep. Uh, Genuinely weird tale. Like, it's got all the hallmarks of the weird. It's got everything there, right there from the start. Because, I mean, there was little, he had little to go on at that time. I mean, Gothic literature was swinging. And Gothic literature, the early stuff, like the Castle of Otranto, Horace Walpole and that sort of stuff is very freaking weird and surreal. But uh, the subtlety of this particular story, it just feels very contemporary to me. Yeah, Yeah, shockingly. Yeah, the psychological dimension of it, the ambiguities, it all feels very refined and very, uh, very strange. And like, I don't know, it just seems like he kind of wrote the book in a way, Hoffman. Yeah, I mean, he really is sort of like, uh, I don't want to say the father of weird fiction, because there's never a single parent to these things, but certainly an elder figure, a somewhat prophetic figure. Yeah. I confess that I was always inclined to assume, totally erroneously, that Hofmann was a very boring fellow, because when you take music history classes, you get... E.T.A. Hoffman shoved down your throat because he was an important music critic. He was an important lots Mm. of things. He was a polymath. The way he made his living was as a civil servant. He had a law degree and he worked in the Prussian civil service, much interrupted by the Napoleonic Wars, but still that was his main occupation. But in addition to that, he was also a good composer, was a dramatist, Apparently, at least one of his operas is still in the repertory, at least in Germany. He was also a music critic. Uh, He was an early proponent of Beethoven's music. Hmm. You have to understand that when Beethoven starts right at the beginning of the 19th century, starts writing pieces of music that are like longer and more violently emotional and stranger and more demanding, there were pretty controversial. A lot of people who are like, I don't understand why music is doing this. Like, yeah, you're supposed to be just entertaining me. Right. You're supposed to please me. Why are you deliberately not pleasing me? And this is, of course, the, you know, an early stage or an early development in the centuries long estrangement of artists from audiences. The idea that there's an art that might not be what you want, but it's what you need. I mean, Beethoven was the culture hero for that point of view. His importance, not just to other musicians, but artists throughout the 19th into the 20th century, stemmed from the sense that he was that kind of an artist, a Promethean artist willing to suffer for bringing the light to a benighted humanity. And E.T.A. Hoffman was one of the first major literary voices to really get that about Beethoven and wrote a lot of important early criticism of Beethoven when Beethoven was still alive. So you encounter him in music history classes and back when I was a dull, sullen pianist with very few academic interests, I remember just thinking that Hoffman was a very boring fellow. But much to my surprise, reading Hoffman's short fiction as a more or less adult person, uh, it's shockingly imaginative. Yeah. And and, and different from anything else. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite unique. 
And yet he packs into that story many of uh, what would become like just staples of the weird. The automaton, the figure of the Sandman, the kind of, uh, I guess, the reinvention, the modern reinvention of a folkloric of a character from another era, right? Of a figure, an older folklore figure. The double. The idea of the double, right? The double, which uh, must have rung pretty true for you, considering what you encountered a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, and the way he weaves these different elements together to create a very singular effect that you're sensing connects everything, but you can't quite put your finger on what it is that brings all these disparate elements together, nor for that matter, do you know by the end of the story what the Sandman is, although the story seems to imply at the end that he is an actual, quote unquote, supernatural figure of some sort. Uh, The ambiguity that he leaves you with is one of the things that really impressed me. I mean, Poe, a little later, did ambiguity, obviously, extremely well, but in a different way. Poe is ambiguous from the beginning. The whole thing is ambiguous. You don't know if you're just reading about a dream or an actual, you know, set of events. In this, he really does the trick of pulling you into a, a real world, although you start off with the voice of a character who may or may not be kind of neurotic in some way. You get the sense from the beginning, this person's not quite stable, but then he brings you into a third person narration at the end where yeah. you're perfectly in a a stable, objective world, and things just get weirder there. <laughs> and so it's like, wow, we, it, it, the way that he starts you off in this subjective zone where you, you are allowed to question the sanity of the, of, the, of the character and then moves you out into a world where, although you're still questioning the sanity of the character, you're also seeing that the facts are even stranger than what the character thought they were. It's like, wow, this is a multi-level kind of weirdness that's just like it's like it's like uh i'm really into sun the band sun these days and one of the things that they use these like really deep really loud drone guitar sound distortion you know really loud distortion and they'll build a resonance in a space over like an hour and i read an interview with one of the members of the band he was saying like they were playing in this church in uh, northern europe somewhere in uh, norway i think and he said by after 90 minutes the sounds they'd been creating were had been layering one on top of the other for so long that he could see the air wobble. It was like physically affecting the place. And when they stopped playing, there was an immediate change in the air pressure around them, right? Because hmm. you're, you're throwing one element out, like one chord, and then another one on top, and then there's like this overtone, and then you throw something else on top. And even though some of them might not be perceptible anymore after a while, they their effect lingers on and they build on what was there before. And I feel like that's what's going on in the story, is that he's feeding you hmm. one element at a time, and they're all building up towards something. And by the end of the story, there's this crazy resonance going on. You're feeling this immense significance and then it just stops. And you're left to, I guess, wonder what it was that happened exactly, because it's not quite clear. It's It's like some, the the story ends just like somebody unplugging their amplifier. Yeah. It just just cuts right the fuck out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does have a pretty clear closing event, right? The death of the protagonist. But the way it happens just opens up a whole bunch of new questions that we're then left to uh, ponder on our own, which is, I guess, the the sine qua non of real weirdness is the lingering question, right? I love that metaphor. It reminds me, actually, your description of Sun, 
which is spelt son o yeah. parenthesis parenthesis parenthesis. Yeah. It's a typographical recreation of the logo of an amp company from Seattle. Right. Uh, right. It's the Sun Amps. It's just S U N N and then their logo, the company's logo is like a a circle with like sound waves coming out of it. And yeah. so they recreated that in type and that's the name of their band, yeah. I loved your description of what they do because, yeah, it's this kind of drone metal where you're patiently building up layer by layer a sound and you experience it as a sound, but it's a sound that nevertheless is built up almost sort of reminds me of certain painters who just overpaint and overpaint and overpaint and overpaint until you have this like thick gob of dry paint on the canvas so you have not only color but volume right it's it gives it a three-dimensional quality and you know there's a really important figure of avant-garde music lamont young who in the 60s had a legendary group the theater of eternal music or what one of its members Tony Conrad called the Dream Syndicate. And they were playing this kind of music, drones, often just two-note drones or occasionally three-note drones, and would do exactly what you described. And like there are no official recordings of it for various reasons. There are bootlegs, but they don't convey any of the sense of what it would have been like to actually be in the room. And that was the whole point, that you would be in a room of these like tremendously amplified drones. And the idea was that the air would feel thick. People talked about that feeling, being at a theater of eternal music performance, where the air itself feels like a semi-solid medium. One critic compared being in a room with them playing to finding yourself underwater and yet somehow able to breathe. Yeah, yeah. Three-dimensional sculptures of air, of of wiggling air molecules that you can walk around in. And indeed, in a interview with Tony Conrad, he has a line where he says, we lived inside the sound for years. Right. And I always loved that. The idea that you're creating a sound that's like a house, something that you can live in. It's architectural. And right. Yeah. Something architectural. And the reason I'm going off on this is because this actually describes something that I find very important in weird literature. I've tried to get at it other times by talking about mood, but mood is a rather vague way of talking about it. So I'm sort of trying to approach it from a different angle. You know, a story that really works for me, like a Robert Aikman story, or this story, The Sandman, is like, am I skipping along the surface? Am I reading it the way I read most things? I'm like, it's you know, it's going in through my eyeballs and I'm having thoughts about it. And then when I'm done, then I don't know, I've read it. But it's something that remains, as it were, two-dimensional. And the words remain on a two-dimensional plane in front of me. Of course, that is literally true all the time when you're reading a book, but it stays that way. But the stories that I love are the ones that make you feel like you're drawn into something thick and three-dimensional. Yeah. A sound you can live in, and that's what I feel. Yes, I know. I, I totally agree, and that's. I guess that's why I was making that comparison between what what Sun and other drone musicians do, and what was going on in Hoffman's story. The difference is that in a music context, what you're doing is you're basically disrupting or activating or agitating the actual air in the space. And that combined with the affective, aesthetic qualities of the sound you're producing and the intention and all that stuff that goes into any work of art creates this 
this effect. So it could have various moods, right? A cathedral is basically a kind of resonance box for sound. That's how they're designed. That's and right. so when you have a choir in a church or a metal band in a church, the architecture is working with you to create something very right. special and very big. But of course, the choir is not the same mood as the as the metal band. It's the metal band. Um, they're both ecstatic in Machen's sense of the of the term. They're both aiming for ecstasy, but they achieve uh, different types of ecstasy. But how would we transpose this kind of musical or I guess acoustic idea into literature? It's like it's almost like what's going on in Hoffman when he's giving you these ambiguities. He's giving you events and then he's immediately kind of like disrupting any semiotic capture of the event. He's like stopping you from settling on any one interpretation. Yes. So it's kind of this conceptual subversion, right? It's mm-hmm. like, it's because yep. literature, wanted or not, works through concepts, words, right? So it's giving you concepts, but because it's art, and this is maybe one of the differences between a textbook and a poem, it's that the concepts are held in suspense or disrupted or subverted somehow by their context. So you're, you're feeding someone things they've seen before, things they think they know, but then surrounding them with other events that either contradict any kind of like preconception of what things meant or bring them in this new direction, show them to you differently. So it's kind of this psychological version of what is going on in the drone concert because yeah in the right. in the weird in the weird text what you're doing is that there's this layering this constant layering of ambiguity on top of ambiguity on top of ambiguity and it's like the shell of the concepts are breaking and the affective power that lies within them the kind of purely I don't want to say purely emotional but kind of more symbolic imaginal power that that drives concepts in general is released and then that creates a kind of resonance in your head, a drone in your head of like of weirdness. And then yeah. it's added to another one and another one and another one. And by the end, it's just this huge dissonant barrage of weird, you know, like, and then you're, you're vibrating yeah, column of weird it, when it's really well done. I get the same feeling from uh, when I read Ligotti, to be honest, or uh, yeah. actually yeah. Yeah, yeah, a yeah, lot yeah. of Lovecraft, too. We, we could have an argument about that. No, actually, you know that I have some reservations about Lovecraft, but what you just described literarily is totally what Lovecraft does in every story. He's a frickin' master at it. So I actually, I have an example of the kind of ambiguity or the layering of um, irreality. It's a good word, yeah. And it happens fairly early in the story. So where the story begins, it's a letter sent from Nathaniel to his friend Lothario. And by the way, Lothario's sister, Clara, is Nathaniel's beloved. They're is he her, Lothario is in your version? I think he's Lothair in mine. That's weird. Yeah, I've got the Penguin Tales of Hoffman. Um, and I forget the name of the translator, but yeah. Change um, the name. Lothar, Lothario. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway, so in this letter, he tells a story of being visited by Coppola, an Italian maker of optical devices, who's trying to sell him a barometer. And this Coppola arouses a kind of violent antipathy in Nathaniel, who almost throws him down the stairs. And so he's writing this letter to his friend and his friend's sister, his girlfriend, to explain why. And he's like, well, I could have sworn that this guy, Coppelia, is the same person as somebody named Coppelius, who I 
knew of when I was a little kid. And he tells this sort of flashback story when he was a child, his nurse would say, okay, time for bed or the Sandman will get you. And the Sandman is this figure of German folklore. The Sandman sprinkles fiery grains of sand in the eyes of bad little boys and girls who won't go to sleep. And those grains will make their eyes pop out of their heads. And the Sandman collects their eyes and takes them to feed his children on the moon. And Nathaniel's like, of course, you know, I was scared of this when I was a little kid, but it didn't take long for me to realize that it wasn't true. But nevertheless, I conceived the peculiar notion that the Sandman would visit our house and indeed that I could hear him coming. And so he tells the story about how, you know, there were some nights when there was almost a pall over the house, like his mother would lose her cheerful temperament and his father would seem suddenly closed up and grim and they would be hustled off to bed early, sometimes told like, okay, you know, don't want to, don't want the Sandman to catch you. And he would lie awake and he would hear the heavy tread of an unfamiliar pair of feet on the staircase. And his father and some visitor who was never named or never described or never acknowledged in anybody's conversation would come in and his father and this strange visitor would go behind a closed door and do I don't know, mysterious things. And of course, as a small boy, you're consumed with curiosity to find out what's going on. So one night, Nathaniel hides in his father's room, you know, peeking out to see what happens. And he sees this advocate, a lawyer from the town named Coppelius, a man who he has known in other contexts, somebody who sometimes visits the house and who the children absolutely hate. They despise this Coppelius and Coppelius knows this perfectly well and goes out of his way to antagonize the children. But on this particular occasion, he sees his father and Coppelius involved in some strange alchemical process that involves fire and at some point, Coppelius says something like, ah, we have eyes. And Nathaniel is so frightened, he cries out and gives away the fact that he's been hiding in this room. And it's such a great moment of weirdness. So we, do you think you could read it? Yeah. Eyes here, eyes, roared Coppelius tonelessly. Overcome by the wildest terror, I shrieked out and fell from my hiding place upon the floor. Coppelius seized me and bearing his teeth bleated out, ah, little wretch, little wretch. Then he dragged me up and flung me on the hearth where the fire began to singe my hair. Now we have eyes enough, a pretty pair of child's eyes, he whispered. And taking some red hot grains out of the flames with his bare hands, he was about to sprinkle them in my eyes. My father, upon this, raised his hands in supplication, crying, master, master, leave my Nathaniel his eyes. Whereupon Capilius answered with a shrill laugh, Well, let the lad have his eyes and do his share of the world's crying, but we will examine the mechanism of his hands and feet. And then he seized me so roughly that my joints cracked, and screwed off my hands and feet, afterwards putting them back again, one after the other. There's something wrong here, he mumbled, but now it's as good as ever. The old man has caught the idea, hissed and lisped Capilius. But all around me became black, a sudden cramp darted through my bones and nerves, and I lost consciousness. A gentle, warm breath passed over my face. I woke as from the sleep of death. 
My mother had been stooping over me. Is the Sandman still here? I stammered. No, no, my dear child. He has gone away long ago. He won't hurt you, said my mother, kissing her darling as he regained his senses. Very fucked up. Yeah, and he's just telling the story like, uh, there's this kind of double movement. So on the one hand, he's like, talking about the disillusionment from a childhood fantasy to a more adult understanding that mythical characters like the Sandman do not really exist. But if they don't exist, then who is that that comes up and visits my dad at night? And then actually seeing this guy who is somebody he already knows, the advocate, Coppelius, an, an everyday person, but in this diabolical sort of incarnation yeah 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 who then without any particular comment like in the letter this is all part of a letter that nathaniel sending to his friend without saying like and you won't believe what happened next or like this was really fucking weird or believe me i know this sounds insane but you know but he screwed off my arms and legs (laughs) (laughs) so you have um this motion between the impossible and the prosaic and then in the letter that he gets returned is is Clara who has read the letter and she responds with a very rational explanation of like you're projecting your own ideas of um, basically the devil. And when you realize that all of these things are coming from you and not in the outer world, then you'll be free of this dreadful apparition of Coppelius, which is exactly what we would tell somebody now in 2020 uh, if they told us some weird fucking story. Well, that was kind of all in your head. And so from the beginning, the story is setting up this polyphonic kind of texture of reality claims. Exactly. Exactly. Conceptual subversion, metaphysical subversion. We don't know what the assumptions are in this world. It's worth describing briefly how Nathaniel's nanny describes the Sandman to him. He's uh, a man who steals children's eyes at night, tears their eyes out after putting sand in them, takes their eyes out, brings them to the moon where he lives and feeds the eyes to his children who have owl beaks and pluck out the eyes, oh, yeah, right. eat the eyes of children. So it's a very fantastical, almost kind of like um, mythological image. And I don't know if that's Hoffman's own reinvention already of what the folklore was saying about the Sandman or if that's how he was described to some children. I'm sure people found all kinds of imaginative ways of making the Sandman scary for their kids. We have a version in French Canada called the Bonhomme Setard, the seven o'clock man. And uh, he does the same thing. And I was told all kinds of things as a kid as to what this particular monster did to children after a certain time in the evening. Always in good fun, of course, in my family, except my grandmother actually used it seriously. Like, and I, I was always not quite sure if the adults were making this up or if they this was for real because I was living at that time at that young age at four or five or whatever I was living in that wobbly unsettled reality that a weird story puts you in all kids live in that world anyways true very true so when the narrator says well I was old enough to know that that was too crazy to be true but <laughs> This is being written by a guy who also then claims a few minutes later, the man unscrewed my arms and and, uh, my hands and feet and put them back on. It is so weird because it's playing on our self-assurance about reality. It's appealing to us to say, isn't that absurd what the nanny said? But then it's giving us something 
that would be equally absurd. But we're to understand that this happened. Of course, we're still at this point in the story. We're still in a zone where we can safely just attribute all the weirdness to the narrator's neuroses or psychoses, right? So we're still safe at this part. As weird as it is and as as unsettling as it is, we have that out. We don't have yeah. that out later on in the story. And 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 Clara, you know, feeds us the settling rational frame that allows us to say, okay, Nathaniel is clearly a neurotic young man. And he is. He's clearly pretty tight wound. But that doesn't change anything, really. No, That exactly. doesn't cause us to discount his ideas. Yeah, that's something that came up in my conversation with Stuart Davis on his show, Aliens and Artists, where we were talking about, well, what do we do about, like, if we're going to listen to some people's reports about what's going on out there. Some people have experienced things that are pretty insane. And we, the two of us, have taken a lot of that seriously in the course of our podcast. And I certainly believe a lot of that sort of thing. But then, of course, you also have people who hallucinate and who are uh, just reporting fantasies and, and just things yeah, that never people happened. People who are unwell or... Yeah, people who aren't... Whatever, for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so how do you parse out these things. Well, it's like, it depends on what's possible was my answer. Like, it depends. Do we live in a world where people can unscrew each other's arms and feet if they're in the proper context? Or do we live in a world where creatures come down from the moon and rip out people's eyes, which is not all that far from kind of UFO or stuff? Well, if we are, then <laughs> that's what's going to tell us whether a person's insane or not. You can't just begin by deciding what's possible and what's not, and then judging people's reports based on that. You would actually have to know what's possible before you could know if someone's telling you utter bullshit or a true story. So the best tools we have are corroboration and, and analysis. You listen to somebody's report, you try to figure out their intention, you try to figure out the context. And if the situation is, as it often is in the case of ufology, if the person is utterly sane and down to earth and is reporting this like they would report anything else, but then you have to take it seriously. And that then modifies the parameters of the possible for you so that when you do talk to someone else who may be a little less stable, you can at least give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because unstable people might see aliens too. <laughs> like it's not yeah. just because you're unstable yeah. that you can't see a real alien. So it's a metaphysical question before it can become a psychological question. Now, I think it's worth reading the description of Coppelius. Coppelius, the advocate. One of the things that we mentioned at the beginning of the show, one of the things that is uncanny and weird about this story, about Hofmann in general, is his love of doubles, doubling, doppelgangers, which I respond to after the odd experience I had that we talked about in our last show, The Wicker Man Show. And Coppelius is the most notable double, or multiple, I'll say, because What's clearly set up is, as I said, that this advocate Coppelius is the same person or somehow the same person as Coppola, the seller of optical devices. They're not quite the same. Nathaniel can't quite make up his mind if it's the same guy or not. They look different. The name is similar. And there's that weird repetition of the motif of eyes. So... I want to read the passage where Hoffman describes, or actually Nathaniel describes Coppelius, because it's a striking description 
And it gives us the baseline from which other iterations depart. Like there's Coppola, but there's also the demonic version of Coppelius that the young Nathaniel glimpses in his father's room, who is the same, but somehow diabolically transformed. Anyway, here's the description of Coppelius, the advocate, this old asshole who shows up at his family's house and ruins everybody's good time. So an asshole but not the devil or anything, just an ordinary garden variety. Well, maybe not ordinary or garden variety, but at least a terrestrial asshole, a fully explicable asshole. Imagine a broad-shouldered man with a big misshapen head, an ochre yellow face, gray bushy eyebrows from under which a pair of green cat's eyes blaze out piercingly, and a large heavy nose drawn down over the upper lip the crooked mouth often distorted in a malignant laugh, at which times two dark red blotches appear on the cheeks and a strange hissing sound comes from between the clenched teeth. Coppelius always appeared in an ash-gray coat of old-fashioned cut and a similarly styled waistcoat and straight trousers, but in addition he wore black stockings and shoes with jeweled buckles. His little wig covered hardly more than the crown of his head, Rolls of hair stood high over his big red ears, and a broad, discolored hairbag stuck out at the back of his neck, so that you could see the silver buckle which fastened the plaited cravat. The whole figure was altogether loathsome and repellent, but what we children found repugnant above all were his great, knotty, hair-covered hands, and we lost all liking for anything he touched with them. He had noticed this and took pleasure in touching, under this or that pretext, any little piece of cake or delicious fruit which our mother had secretly put onto our plate, so that the sweetmeats we were supposed to enjoy then filled us only with disgust and revulsion. He did the same when, on special days, our father had poured for us a little glass of wine. He reached over quickly with his hand, or even took the glass to his blue lips and laughed devilishly when we dared to express our anger only by gentle sobbing. He used always to call us the little beasts. When he was present, we were not allowed to make a sound, and we cursed the malign and repellent man who deliberately sought to ruin for us even the most minute pleasure. A repugnant man who somehow had the run of the place when he came over. Yeah, Hoffman's contrasting Coppelius to Nathaniel's father, whom Nathaniel is quite fond of in the narrative. Like the father was a, a kind, gentle father who would take his kids up to study after dinner and regale them with stories while he smoked his pipe. And Nathaniel just loved lighting his father's pipe as the room filled with smoke and his father's jovial um, demeanor made the evening uh, a wonderful experience, right? But then the contrast is between that character and then this other a figure, this other male figure who occasionally comes into the house and turns it into a kind of hell, ruins everything. So this to me is something that Freud points out in his famous essay on this uh, story, amongst other things, The Uncanny, is that this doubling of the father into this devilish figure is something that I think many of us have experienced. I remember as a young child, very young, before my parents divorced, so before I was four, feeling that my parents were different people at night. I felt that. Now, I remember reading Jung talking about his mother in the same way. He said that 
his mother was the kindest person in the world during the day, but at night she became something else. It's the the world of the adult. I mean, eventually soon, I think we're going to be doing uh, Neil Gaiman's graphic novel, Mr. Punch, which is all about that. How a child sees the world differently. The world of grownups is so mysterious to a child, but the child can't understand it. And it manifests to him as something menacing, which it is, right? Parents, we protect our children from a lot of really hard and uh, dark realities that we kind of shield them from those. And But what's beautiful about Mr. Punch, and I think in this too, he's playing with the same idea, is that what the child sees, what the child quote unquote projects onto the world through his ignorance is actually another level of reality. And it's not that the child doesn't understand the world, but the child sees the imaginal. The child sees yeah. what's going on behind the scenes. He sees things that the adults don't realize exists. And um, this horrible figure, and I'm sure we all can remember it was kids, like adults that were particularly hard for us to handle. Grotesque. Um, grotesque adults. <laughs> You're describing the mundane version, the kind of like actual concrete real version of uh, Coppelius, yeah. but he's described as a kind of demon with cat's eyes. Yeah. Nonetheless, he has yeah. cat's eyes. So he's got like slits for pupils. Okay. Yeah. Like uh, that's what I'm seeing. Um, and the description of these long features, the nose that hooks down and the jutting chin and fucking cat's eyes and shit. You just imagine a goblin's face. One it's more. A goblin, yeah, it is. Know? He's a goblin. One more drone, right? Because we're given this description and we're supposed to take this as the kind of, okay, that's the who he really was. He wasn't the Sandman. He was this actual, but he was, okay, so he was a goblin and then he was the Sandman and then he was this, you know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. throwing in yeah. another log on the fire of weirdness. He's you know? constantly shifting. Yeah. Yeah. He's a shapeshifter. And every time he comes back, it's this uncanny, like, oh shit, it's him again. And yet he's different. Yeah. He's a, a strange shifting person protean figure that we are led to believe halfway through the story, at least in the first part, uh, eventually, thanks to Clara, is just a figment of Nathaniel's imagination. So we're led to believe at first that, in fact, Coppelius was probably just a kind of gross guy, and there was no Sandman, and this uh, Coppola fit guy is just a similar dude that the neurotic narrator has decided is, you know... And then things take a turn, slowly. Do you want to describe the turn? Basically, Nathaniel, in this story, is living in another city. The city's not named. And he's studying there. His teacher is a, or one of his teachers, is a mechanics specialist, a kind of, I guess, a... Named Spallanzani. And um, Spallanzani is friends with this Coppola guy, who's trying to sell him a barometer at the beginning. So... Again, you see this doubling. Spallanzani is the good father, and Coppola is now the new Coppelius, the new bad father, right? Yeah. Now, Coppola sells Nathaniel a little telescope, which Nathaniel uses to spy on Spallanzani's daughter, whom he can see through his window across the, the alleyway or the courtyard or whatever. And he has noticed her before, but now he can really watch her with this little telescope. And this girl basically just sits in her room all day, not moving, looking almost dead. The first time she's described, it feels like something from a horror film. 
like you're parting the curtain and you see a woman sitting in a room and she seems to have been sitting there forever and looks like she'll be sitting there forever. She's a beautiful girl and she just sits there looking inanimate. I think right from the start, the idea that she might actually not be a real person, but an automaton, uh, that, that seed is planted quite early. But Nathaniel becomes obsessed with her once he gets the telescope and uh, eventually falls in love with her head over heels and tries to convince his friends that she's not the, uh, I guess, the deadbeat that they think she is. They all think that she barely has a pulse. She doesn't speak. She just sits there looking beautiful. But she's basically Nathaniel's plaything. Unlike Clara, who would kind of just like patiently listen to Nathaniel's poems and, and writings, Olympia, which is the name of this, the daughter, Olympia, this possible automaton, she, of course, is only too happy to listen to Nathaniel's blathering and <laughs> his long readings <laughs> of poetry and whatnot. And he loves her because she gives him everything he needs. And then, of course, comes the reveal where one night Nathaniel comes up into the apartment and sees Coppola and Spallanzani fighting over the lifeless and eyeless figure that is Olympia. They're basically just playing tug of war with this girl. And it's clear at that point that she's not real. She's an automaton that they designed together. And Coppola runs off with her and Spallanzani points to her eyes, which are lying there on the, on a table or something. And Spallanzani tells Nathaniel that those are his eyes, Nathaniel's eyes. So Nathaniel eventually goes home after all this, he ends up in the hospital. Then he goes back home to Clara and uh, Lothair. And um, he rekindles his relationship with Clara. And things are looking good until they decide to go for a walk and to climb up a tower to look at the countryside in the nearby village. They climb up, they look around, and then Clara sees someone or something off in the distance. Nathaniel takes out his telescope and looks. We don't find out what he sees yet. But he completely freaks out. He accuses Clara of being an automaton and attempts to throw her off the tower. Lothair rescues her, but Nathaniel remains at the top of the tower, basically insane at this point. And all, yeah, a, crowd of, a, a, a crowd of people is gathered in the plaza to look at this. And then we see Coppelius, the original Coppelius, walk onto the yeah. scene. We assume that he was the figure that they saw with the telescope from the top. And he says, don't bother trying to get him down. He'll come down of his own accord. And sure enough, Nathaniel jumps to his death. And that's how the story ends.
I want to play you something, Tales of Hoffman, which is an opera by Jacques Offenbach. The, the first act of this opera is based on the Sandman. It's based on a particular incident in the Sandman where there's a ball, like a party, and Spallanzani wants to introduce his quote-unquote daughter to society. And so Olympia comes out and she moves very beautifully and gracefully. She dances acrobatically and she can sing and play piano very, very accurately. But there seems to be something a little bit false or tinselly about it. You know, you can't quite put your finger on it. It's obvious to everybody in the ballroom that... Olympia is a mechanical doll. And Nathaniel, however, is just enraptured. He can't see her as an automaton. He sees her as a real woman. And so everybody is laughing up their sleeve at Nathaniel because it's the saddest thing. This guy's totally in love with what is obvious to them is a doll. But Nathaniel is completely deluded. And so the best moment, arguably, of Offenbach's Tales of Hoffman is a scene where at that party where Olympia comes out and sings a little song. This is where Hof, um, Offenbach's comic sensibilities really come into play because it's written as an aggressively insipid little aria. You know, I've taught this piece a bunch of times and I still can't remember what any of the words are because they're so purposefully inane. Right. Uh, and the song, it's like one of those songs of the sort that Frank Zappa always liked to write, where he would write in a purposefully cheesy idiom. So something that was not like an old time Tin Pan Alley song or something, but the whole point is that it's being held up to you as an example of a- It's kind of simulacrum. Uh, simulacrum, yeah, yeah. exactly. Offenbach is doing that in the late 19th century. So this is like an eerie kind of like presaging of one of the classic moves that modernist creators would do. Yeah, a kind of metafictional move. Yeah. Yeah. And this aria also is one of the most virtuosic pieces of music for soprano. It's insane. So it's the idea you want to show this mechanical doll who can do everything perfectly and yet soullessly. And so it's this aria, which is like, as I say, aggressively banal, but pointing to its own banality and also doing that partly by its uh, purposefully empty and formulaic explosions of extraordinary vocal virtuosity. And there are moments like this one line where she's singing, bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. I can't remember the words. Where it has this awkward, herky, jerky rhythm. Like a robot, yeah. And it's the best musical evocation of what we're talking about. That kind of uncanniness. It's kind of weird, in fact, to find that in opera, which does not necessarily often delve into these realms. I'm curious to see what you make of it. Oh, my God. 
the difference between the opera and the story is that in the opera, it's quite obvious that she's not real. <laughs> she gets wound up halfway through. Whereas in the story, everyone does think she's real until it comes out scandalously that Spallanzani designed a, an automaton. And at which point he's thrown out of town because of, of this horrible thing he did, which is create a fake human, pass it off as a real one. But the essence of the scene is there. You have this Nathaniel, you can see in the opera, and what you just showed me in the staging of it and the blocking, that Nathaniel is completely convinced by this pathetic attempt at making this uh, robot that, and he, he's, for some reason, he just believes it. Whereas everyone else is taking it at best half seriously and kind of just right. looking at it as a, as a kind of novelty act. So that's interesting because there is the question when you read the story of why does Nathaniel fall in love with this automaton? Because for me, so of course I read this story after I read Freud's Uncanny. I think most people today, there are probably more people who've read Freud's essay, The Uncanny, than there are who've read Hoffman's story, right? We can safely say. And, uh, Freud's essay includes a fairly elaborate summary of the story, a retelling of the story. And of course, the reason that Freud is, has selected this story is because for him, it's a proof of concept for his castration complex idea, right? He reinterprets Hoffman's story in light of psychoanalytic theory. Basically, he <laughs> really speciously, in my opinion, tells us that the idea of a character that tears the eyes out of children is a sublimation or a metaphor for castration, that losing one's sight is basically what it really means is losing your sex organs if you're a male, which I think is an absurd idea, but whatever. But that's because <laughs> Freud is doing something else, and I hope we can get to that, because I, I was really impressed, again, reading this, this Freud essay once more. I've read this one lots of times. Now, more than ever, I'm convinced that Freud was a first and foremost, a weird fiction author, and that The Uncanny is not an analysis of The Sandman, but a sequel to The Sandman, a mm. fictional sequel. But anyways, early on in the essay, Freud quotes another researcher, scholar of the time, Jentsch, who wrote, in telling a story, one of the most successful devices for easily creating uncanny effects is to leave the reader in uncertainty whether a particular figure in the story is a human being or an automaton and to do it in such a way that his attention is not directly focused upon his uncertainty, so that he may not be urged to go into the matter and clear it up immediately, since that, as we have said, would quickly dissipate the peculiar emotional effect of the thing. Hoffman has repeatedly employed this psychological artifice with success in his fantastic narratives. And Freud admits that, yeah, that is a very uh, good way of getting an uncanny effect. I have an exact repetition of that experience in my own life. I'm talking about this like I was really young, six maybe, and went to an amusement park and we were on like one of those haunted house rides. And it was, so it was a thing where, you know, you're on a, a little car that's being moved through the house. So it's on tracks or whatever. Love those. Yeah. And there's like ghouls and skeletons and witches and things coming out at you. And I remember not finding that terribly scary, but then we went through one passage where it was really dark and I couldn't see anything. And it was the darkness that was really beginning to scare me. And I, my mom was behind me. My mom had at the time like long straight hair. It was the 70s. It was the style of the times. Jody right. Mitchell hair. And I turned around and I couldn't see her face. I couldn't see 
if it was my mom, I just saw this person with long, straggly hair. And I remember being terrified, like, that's my mom. That's not my mom. I couldn't believe that this was my mom. I didn't see her face at all. It was exactly like that shot in Lost Highway of of Renee's, uh, just the darkness of like the void of her face and that backlit long hair. That was what I saw with my mom. And I couldn't decide if it was my mom or if somehow one of these ghouls had come to life and gotten into the little cart with us. I couldn't figure it out. And I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't figure out because it wasn't my mom. And yet it was. And yet it was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can interpret it in different ways. You know, the way that through a Freudian slash Lacan slash Zizek kind of register, we could say that when you look at someone and you don't recognize them, someone you know very well and you don't recognize them, you're seeing what Lacan would call the real. You're seeing that there's nothing behind the act that this person is, that ultimately we are deep down automatons. And we can't, we don't want to face it. And that's precisely what Freud's doing in this essay, which unbelievable. I've always seen it. It's always given me, reading this essay has always given me an uncanny feeling. Not because I believe psychoanalysis got it right, but I believe that psychoanalysis is imaginally true. It's true in the same way as any great fiction is true, right? So in the, the essay, Freud eventually ends up developing the idea that the uncanny, what he calls the uncanny, unheimlich in uh, German, right? Unhomely is how you directly translate it. What is uncanny is, uh, and he quotes Schelling on this, is that which is familiar but should have remained hidden. You feel the uncanny effect when you see something that you knew but should have remained off stage, away, out of sight. And he has all these examples from stories and cases that he studied and his own experience about how this occurs. And what he says is that the return of the repressed is basically the uncanny. And for Freud, what that means is all- Repetition. Yeah, repetition. The repetition, but the, the coming back of something that you thought was gone, right? Like, so he says that in our infancy, whether individually in our individual infancy or in our infancy as a species, we believed in things like the omnipotence of thought. We believed that the world existed for us, inside us. And so we were animistic. This is how Freud interprets it, that- Animism is the childhood of humanity. And we grew out of it as a civilization, and each one of us grows out of it in their own life. We all start off as animists, as children, and eventually we learn that our thoughts cannot affect the world and blah, 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 and that the world's not populated by spirits, that some things aren't alive and uh, some things are. And we have to learn the reality principle, you know, as Freud would put it, and then we grow out of it. But we don't grow out of it like it goes away. We repress it. We repress that way of seeing things. And the uncanny is when that way of seeing things turns out to be, in appearance, the way things are, right? So if you draw a number when you get on a train, your ticket number is 62, then you see the number 62 somewhere else, and you see it again somewhere else. You are given the impression that the world you once thought existed, a world where everything is planned out and everything is animated and everything is intelligence you are being given the impression that that world is actually the case. And that comes to you as scary because it's a regression, right? Back into a a benighted mode of, of existence for Freud. So 
Freud claims at the beginning of the story that he's he is immune to the uncanny because he uh, has figured out what it means. And therefore, he can only try to put himself imaginatively into a space where he often does this. Uh, he does this with oceanic feelings when he's talking about mystical experiences. Like, yes, that's right. I have no idea what they're talking about. And then describes it quite well. <laughs> it's like, um, but again, we, we well, have to remember. He's an unreliable narrator. He is in the most brilliant way, in the most brilliant way. And um, let's just go back for a second. I'll just finish my bit on this. Uh, one part of it anyways. It's He goes back to the idea of the automaton, right? And how he does agree with Jensch that that's a good way of generating the uncanny. Because the automaton is a symbol for him, a personification of who we were as infants. We were just puppets to all these other forces. So we're seeing that. Now... The thing is this, there's a moment in Freud's text where he kind of gives it away what he's actually doing here, at least what I think he's actually doing. He's talking about the narcissism of animism, the narcissism of this way of looking at the world, right? Because he sees it basically as you think you're the center. So all these spirits exist for you. It's like the Nutcracker. All these toys will dance and come to life for you. And you're the center. And your thoughts can affect the world because the world's basically just a thought. And one more thought in your head kind of thing. And the double is another example of the uncanny for Freud because Freud sees the idea of the double as another instance of this kind of narcissism, of, of seeing as real things that are not actually the case. And so in this context, he kind of gives the game away. He says that the, the double has an additional function. It is to show us, quote, all those unfulfilled but possible futures to which we still cling in fantasy. All those strivings of the ego which adverse external circumstances have crushed and all our suppressed acts of volition which nourish in us the illusion of free will. In other words, what he's saying is that we are actually automatons. We don't have yeah. free will. We are actually the thing that we f most fear that we are. Yeah. And later on, he says... Um, we are all Olympia. Yeah, exactly. And he says later, indeed, I should not be surprised to hear that psychoanalysis, which concerned with laying bare these hidden forces, has itself become uncanny to many people for that very reason. So it's like he's achieving a beautiful, brilliant literary effect using the genre of psychological medical writing, you know, like it's just really cool. But of course, then we have to ask ourselves questions about all of his assumptions. You know, I don't think Freud is being, like you said, he's an, he's an unreliable narrator. Because if you read, for example, Jung, Jung will tell you two instances where Freud certainly felt the frisson of the uncanny, but doesn't report it here. The first one was when Jung and Freud were having a, an argument or a debate one night. And at one point, Jung said, the psychic energy in this room has reached a point where we will hear it manifest physically any minute now. And right when he said that, there were loud noises in the, in the wall, like the plumbing just snapped. Like, bah, bah, bah. And Freud was, yeah. went white as a ghost and was completely blown away by this moment. His mind just got... And then another time was when they were arguing about the importance of archetypes and mythology in psychoanalysis. And Freud was really reluctant to let any of those ideas into the discipline beyond the ones that he had allowed into the conversation. And Jung says, what are you so afraid of? And Freud looked at him and said, the black mud tides of occultism. 
Yes. <laughs> and it's like, you can tell that he does believe in a way everything that he's talking about, but he's, it's, he's, 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 he's terrified of it. He's exemplifying for us another type of narcissism, the narcissism yeah. that he gives away when he says, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. He's like, that's phallic. That's phallic. What I'm doing here, this, this is not phallic. It's just a <laughs> cigar. I enjoy. He's yeah. not, he's basically by concealing it, he's revealing to us the narcissism of a non-animistic world, the narcissism of a disenchanted world that does believe in the omnipotence of thought insofar as it believes that it's got the whole world figured out, right? So right. Uh, I just wanted to share that because th for me, the, the figure of the automaton has always been one of the most powerful things. And the idea of seeing someone you know as a stranger is one of the my favorite uncanny moves. Um, and I think the automaton's a lot more important to the Sandman than we might be led to believe if we hang on to the figure of the Sandman in the beginning. Because the first thing that happens with the Sandman is that Coppelius unscrews the hands and feet of Nathaniel as though he were an automaton. Right. The idea of the automaton is kind of central to this story. So I don't yeah. know. What do you make of all this? You know, my sense of what Freud meant by the uncanny comes from his long seeming digression on etymology. And he says at the beginning, he's like, now the way my actual thinking progressed was from experience to then looking up things in dictionaries, but I'm going to do the opposite here and start with dictionary definitions and move to observations. Caveat emptor. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. He do, so, yeah, he is an unreliable narrator. He is. Uh, you don't know. I mean, he, all of that shit about it's like, I don't believe any of this stuff. And, and the constant affectation of scientific superiority over these weak and superstitious minds. Um, also, also the constant display of some kind of putative empiricism based yes. on the cases that he's seen. And that qualifies as strong empirical evidence in his field, as though it, he was doing like botany. <laughs> he's always like talking about people. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just absurd exactly. sometimes. But yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't interrupt. Oh no. Um, so at the beginning, he's talking about two basic, I guess you could say, constellations of meaning around Heimlich. Heimlich is a word that has many purposes, a kind of Swiss Army knife word in German. And the first sense of Heimlich could mean something like cozy. Friendly, intimate, homelike, the enjoyment of quiet content, etc., and sometimes mellow. The word mellow might have a a resonance with heimlich. Uh, the warm room in the heimlich afternoon. You know, you could say like the warm room in the mellow afternoon. Uh, little by little, they grew at ease and heimlich among themselves. You get the idea. But then the second constellation of meaning is concealed, kept from yeah. sight, occult. So an illicit love affair is uh, heimlich love. This is a quote. Freedom is the whispered watchword of heimlich conspirators and the loud battle cry of professed revolutionaries. You know, and one thing that Freud points out is that little bit by little bit, heimlich reverses another one of those enantiodromias we talk so much right. about, that the meaning of Heimlich actually reverses into its opposite, that what is clear in the clear light of day and comforting and familiar and warm, mellow, pleasant, all of those things somehow reverses into the unknown, the unseen, 
and therefore the threatening and weird and so unheimlich and heimlich in a certain sense mean the same thing. And that's an interesting observation. You can see how that twist or transformation of meaning takes place. You think about something intimate. There's an expression that gamblers have, chest your cards, like hold your cards close to the vest or have something cached. It's sort of like secreted. That could be like a cozy thing, but it's also like a hidden thing. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. So he's saying that the unheimlich, which is what mm-hmm. we call, I guess, we unhomelike, he right. quote, I quote, quoting him, the unheimlich is what was once heimlich, homelike, familiar. The prefix un is the token of repression. So mm, it's the thing right. that we know that is close to us, that is familiar, that is known, but hidden and therefore forgotten, repressed. Right? Yep. So, so right. The, the, the word shades slowly. It's a beautiful bit there when he does the etymology because he shows you progressively how the word gets strange. And yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, in English, we have the equivalent. It's not as strong. You wouldn't write an essay about it. But the word homely means ugly. Oh, yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. Uh, but Either it's, home-like, cozy, or ugly. Yeah. 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 yeah that's so true. It's, it's, it's that's there. interesting. Yeah. That's, there's a strangeness in what is closest at hand and what is home. It is what we can least afford to become strange. And if everything is fundamentally strange then the strangest stuff, the scariest stuff is the stuff you think you've got most figured out, right? Mm-hmm. Like your home is what you know best. But if reality is weird to the core, then your home is what you should be most afraid of because it is, it is that in which the weirdness is most cleverly concealed or could reveal itself to you. It's like you wake up in the middle of the night and the lights are out in your house and you have to go to the washroom. Let's say you have to change floors. You have to go follow a trajectory you don't usually follow. Your kid's screaming in the middle of the night. You wake up, your daughter is screaming in her bedroom. Our, our room is in the basement and they are, they're on the top floor. I find myself running up the stairs through this dark place, hearing my daughter screaming. And the house is very different all of a sudden. It's a dark, mm. unknown place. All the more because I know it. You know, that's precisely why it's so strange. That's what Unheimlich is. It's that which is familiar, revealing its unknown facet to you. It's still your mother in the cart, but it's not your mother. Right. The person you thought was your mother doesn't exist. There's something right. else that you've projected yeah. the idea of a mother onto. Right. right. And this belongs to the fabric of the world. So little wonder that Clara couldn't just exorcise Nathaniel's demons by saying, well, it's all a projection. It's right. all in your head. It's something we've said in a Patreon extra. Yeah, it's all in your head, but you have no idea how big your head is. Exactly. Or just sticking to a psychoanalytic mode for a second. Let's take Freud seriously when he says there is no such thing as free will, such that I'm not morally responsible for my projections. They're another effect of the chemical reactions in my brain, the purely material causal chains that make me believe whatever. So the projections exist on the same plane as the surface on which I'm projecting them. They're just more events in a world of blind events. We can't live for long without the idea of free will. Not, neither can Freud. He wouldn't be making money because <laughs> the idea is always, come and see me, I'll cure you of your neurosis if you do these things. All this implies as some kind of idea of free will. I must willingly go to the therapist. I must put in the yeah. work. and then I'm, But of course, the deep truth of it as far as he's concerned, is that deep down, it's all just material causation. Therefore, your projections are not any more unreal 
than anything else. Your projections are just more masks in a world of masks. Nothing has an innate value. It's not like Nathaniel, by unprojecting the devil from Coppelius and Coppola, it's not even up to him. It's just all of this is happening in a world of dolls, ultimately, right? If there is no free will. So it's, I don't know, it's just, it gets weirder when you think of it that way. You know, when I read or I reread The Uncanny, you know that I have like a beef with Freud, that I don't enjoy reading Freud. And there's something that gets in the way of me enjoying reading Freud, even though I recognize he was a wonderful writer, superior prose style, is better writer than Jung was. But there's just something about his writing that sets my teeth on edge. I was reading it and I was like, oh, this fucking guy. And and I was remembering what you've said many times on the show and what you've said on this episode. It's best to read Freud as a master of the weird, a weird fiction writer. So, uh, you know, one of the greats like Lovecraft or like Hoffman. Yeah. Um, and from that point of view, I love what you said. You can read this not as a work that treats in a secondary fashion, the story, The Sandman, but is in fact a sequel, The Sandman. So while I was reading this, I was actually conceiving the idea that this was a story written by E.T.A. Hoffman. Now, Hoffman himself was really into shit that feels super modern, like the kind of like postmodern metafiction move where you're doing stuff where the book is calling attention to its bookiness, to its artifice. And yeah. Like, this is a fiction. Um, his novel, Katamur, is, which I haven't read, but I know about, takes the form of like two different stories. And the idea is that they got shuffled at the printer. And so the book you're reading is like the interleaving of two unrelated texts. One, the story of a tomcat, like an inte- a very intelligent and cultured tomcat. And the other about Hofmann's sort of fictional doppelganger or his imaginary projection of himself, the Kapellmeister Chrysler. And that kind of like tricksy sort of proto-postmodern metafiction. Yeah. I was like, oh, from that point of view, you could read Freud's essay, The Uncanny, as a story by E.T.A. Hoffman with an unreliable character, this guy who is revealed progressively to be completely insane, this Sigmund Freud. And then the most brilliant touch is that in the midst of the turnings and twistings of his mind, Freud starts telling the story of the Sandman. It works, actually, as a kind of a metafiction. It does. Um, And from that point of view, I actually found the essay completely transformed because everything I dislike about Freud, the iron imposition of castration and the Oedipus complex and all those pet little fucking theories, none of which have ever carried the slightest conviction with me. They don't explain anything about me or anybody around me. To me, they are the ravings of a dick obsessed lunatic. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And reading it in that way where he can't stop talking about dicks, he can't stop talking about castration, and it keeps coming back in really forced ways, which if you're reading it straight, like, okay, here's a famous intellectual writer writing about fiction, then it's just, it's barbarously crude. It's it's everything that Jung says he does yeah. in uh, the boring titled essay of Jung. I can never the remember relation, the fucking title. On the relation of analytical psychology to poetry. Yeah, which we bag on that title repeatedly <laughs> in our episode <laughs> on it, and rightly so. So boring. Um, you know, everything that Jung says in that essay about Freud's 
clumsy and philistine technique of talking about art as symptoms. Uh, he does in this. And it's irritating and unilluminating if Red is like, okay, I'm reading this for truth statements about what the Sandman really means. But if you read it, as I say, as the ravings of an unreliable narrator, somebody who is constantly telling us how sane he is, as what he is doing is showing us the exact opposite, then it becomes a work of transcendent fiction. It is. And if we think about Freud's oeuvre in general as a fiction, how would you summarize it? You'd say it's the story of a boy who castrates his father, killing his father and hides the penis away. But from then on, the penis takes on a demonic power. Everything is under its control. You can imagine Jung reading The Uncanny at some point. This is 1914, I think he wrote it, the early Something 20th like century. That, yeah. So Freud's quoting Jentsch, who properly, I think, pointed out the centrality of the automaton in The Uncanny stories. He's like... And then Freud goes, that's good. That's true. But I think there's something else going on here. And you can just see Jung rolling his eyes. Yes, I know. There's a dick. You've hidden a dick. Everything <laughs> here is- Here come the dicks. Yeah, here comes the dick. It's one dick. It's, one, it's his dad's dick. It's his, <laughs> his dad's dick is behind literally everything. You read um, uh, Civilization, It's Discontents. Everything is Freud's dad's dick doing it all. It's doing it all. It's behind it. Everything, everything, art, civilization, <laughs> ideologies, like architecture, everything reduces to Freud's dad's penis. It's crazy. <laughs> it reminds me of that line in, in The Godfather. It was Barzini all along. Yeah. It was dad's dick all along. It's just like, yeah. all, it's like Freud of, is, Freud is like Nathaniel and yeah. every where he goes, yeah. instead of seeing Coppelius, he sees his dad's dick. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, and, and just the, the fact that the first move, when oh. he goes, oh, it's a story about a, 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 a creature that steals children's eyes. And immediately he just brushes that out. No, it's not. It's about uh, the castration. And it's like, it, it, seriously, if I were to ask you, if I were to give you a choice, if I were a psycho, tied you to a chair, and I said, I can either castrate you or remove your eyes, what would you choose? Tough call. Uh, I I would definitely choose castration over losing my eyes, for sure. Hmm. Maybe because I make a living with my eyes, but um, I, 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 I could no, do. I'm not going to say what I was going to say. I, <laughs> I, on the other hand, make a living with them. <laughs> yeah, your gigolo, you know, moonlighting yeah. as a gigolo. Um, I think that I think that after some thought, I have faith that you would probably choose to keep your eyes because there's there's one thing you can't do without your junk, but it's incalculable the amount of things you can't do without your eyes. Yeah, I just don't, I think that the idea that the fear of losing one's eyes is just a sublimation of the fear of losing your, first of all, how, where do women figure into any of this? You know? Yeah, I know. Uh, I think women are just as scared of losing their eyes as men are because it right. sucks to lose your fucking eyes. You know, like, so um, just that move from the beginning is weird. And then it just gets stranger from there. But none, but I agree. Uh, fascinating if you read it as fiction. And one, there's one concrete thing I can do to dispute Freud's, you know, inevitably reductive reading, which is he's focusing on the idea that the motif in The Sandman is the removal of eyes. And therefore, of course, the removal of what the eyes can do, their potentialities. 
But that is not the only way that eyes are thematized in the story. Agreed. And it actually comes out in Offenbach's opera, where earlier in the first act, before Olympia sings her little song, Coppola is selling his eyeglasses to Nathaniel. And Offenbach creates a character who's not in the original story named Niklaus, who's the main... Actually, it's a little complicated because in Tales of Hoffmann, the part of Nathaniel is actually played by E.T.A. Hoffmann. So Offenbach had Hoffmann himself being the poetic protagonist. And the opera actually is a portmanteau of three different Hoffmann stories. Each act is a different story. But in the scene where Hoffmann slash Nathaniel is looking at the eyeglasses merchants wears, Coppola's wears, his friend Niklaus, who's this additional character that Offenbach wrote into the play, tells Hofmann he sells visions. Right. And that is a really good line, and it really throws something into relief. Coppola slash Coppelius is not only about taking away your eyes, he's about giving you new eyes. New ones. Giving you visions. Yeah. Yeah. Like almost like in the Greek myth there. No, I'm trying to think of where I got this idea. But the idea of replacing your eyes with gems and then the, the, you can see another reality through those eyes. I mean, if Jung were to approach the story, I don't want to just like crush on Jung here, but if he were to analyze this story, he would come up with all kinds of analogies and his analysis would reflect the eyes, the centrality of the eyes. You don't need to stick a dick behind everything. You can actually just look at what the story's telling you. There's no mention of sex in this story. Um, so Because it's repressed, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah, exactly. It's your fucking answer to exactly. everything. And just, just to add to the weirdness of Freud himself, in a footnote in The Uncanny, I don't know if you read this one, he reports on a bizarre event he had of a encountering a double of sorts. He tells a story by way of convincing us that he himself is immune to this Perfectly effect. rational. He would be, yeah. his logic is weird. It's like, I would not be surprised or alarmed if I saw my double because I know that doubles don't exist. So if I saw my double, I would know that it's not my double, right? I would know that it's just a guy who looks like me or something like that. Anyways, he, he, he tells this story. He says, I was sitting alone in my wagon lit compartment when a more than usually violent jerk of the train swung back the door of the adjoining washing cabinet and an elderly gentleman in a dressing gown and a traveling cap came in. I assumed that he had been about to leave the washing cabinet, which divides the two compartments, and had taken the wrong direction and come into my compartment by mistake. Jumping up with the intention of putting him right, I at once realized, to my dismay, that the intruder was nothing but my own reflection in the looking glass of the open door. I can still recollect that I thoroughly disliked his appearance. (laughs) (laughs) And then he writes... uh, Uh, Instead, therefore, of being terrified by our doubles, both Mach and I, because he reports a similar event uh, involving another guy, both Mach and I simply failed to recognize them as such. They didn't recognize them as doubles because they don't believe in doubles. Is it not possible, though, that our dislike of them was a vestigial trace of that older reaction which feels the double to be something uncanny? It's like he, he really draws a line between this old way of thinking which is the way that we espouse on weird studies all the time 
a way of thinking that is open to the possibility of the animistic, of the animated world, of the intelligent universe. And a sober, modern, materialist mentality that would, at best, just dislike anything hearkening back to that world that is completely immune to it. He basically completely assumes the factuality of his particular metaphysical idiom and then judges everything on that basis, which is, I mean, he's hardly alone in doing that, you know, right, but it, right. it, the problematic nature of that is so evident when you're reading Freud because he's dealing with these themes all the time. And the weirdest thing is that he clearly loves and understands the uh, weird and he can describe it. He can dive into it. His examples are really powerful as to what constitutes the uncanny. But he is constantly trying to just stave off this black mudslide of occultism. It's like he knows it's there and he knows it's coming and he knows it's real, but he has to do everything in his power to contain it and keep it away. Um, right. Yeah. Man, I can't wait till we read Mumbo Jumbo because all of this stuff comes back in that book. Freud and the black mud tide and all the rest of it in ways that I'm not even going to try and explain. It's the fucking weird, awesome. The weird connections that like, just the way that this show connects us back to your double encounter. Like none of yeah. this was planned, right? It's just like, yeah, yeah everything's kind of weirdly connected. Yeah. No, I, doing this show is, um, at first I used to think of it as like a weirdness attractor, like something that causes weird shit to happen, but uh, well, it's deeper than that. I can't quite put it in words, but it's like, um, no, it's not attracting something. We're in the middle of something that is itself a story. Doing this show is what it is to be on the inside of a story, inside of that vibrating column. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>